just by the course of, of the way the Lord works the things out, uh, as we're coming through some particular study, um, we have that, what is commonly called today, and we hear used all the time in the world, we have a defining moment that presents itself. And uh, I, I don't do these by design. I think that the Holy Spirit of God is bringing most of you along, and you're all in different levels of spiritual growth, and, and uh, we're trying to you know, constantly bring you along with all of that. But I think that just by the nature of, of our ministry, that God so designs that there's times that, that we kind of stop and redefine ourselves. And I, I know that over the last couple of, 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 um, of weeks, you know, maybe the last month or so, we've had a, a number of people that are, are scoping out our church. And, uh, and then uh, many of you, you know, you, uh, you've been coming for uh, a longer than that. But I think that it's good that in any given situation, whether it's in your marriage, whether it's with your own family, with your children, I, I think it's, it's good. I know my wife and I, we go along... Uh, for a while, and and uh, and and we we come to defining moments in our in our marriage, things when when things present themselves, and you have to stop and look at it, and and at that point you have a you have a choice, you can either blow by it and and not deal with it, or you actually stop and to both of you uh, redefine some things, and 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 I found in in our relationship, and and certainly in. Uh, um, you know, in most people's relationships, your relationship is better after that time. And I think that churches are much like that. And I, and I say all that to say this. Uh, this Sunday and next Sunday, especially next Sunday, this Sunday is basically going to be a, 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 a lead-in to what um, we, we get into in, with Paul and Romans next week. But if, if you're somebody who is contemplating this church, if you're somebody who have been checking it out and, and trying to find out, you know, what it's all about and if it's going to fit your pistol, so to speak, um, I think this week and next week will be a, a very defining thing for you. I think that this week and next week, just by the nature of the material that we're going to go through as Paul begins to really reveal himself in the book of Romans and what he's really dealing with, I think it, it demands that we as a church... Uh, stop and, and look at ourselves. And I think if you're somebody just kind of scoping out our church, you know, you know, finding a church is a lot like getting married. You don't want to make a lot of fast decisions. You want to make sure. You want to prove all things. You know, and uh, I always tell couples when they come to me and ask about getting married, I always really, pre I really make sure they understand that I think the, I think the engagement is much more important than the marriage. And that doesn't sound like it's in the right order, but I guarantee you that it is because there has to be a, a proving. And there is no way that in a year's time you can, you can really know where somebody's at and, and because we all put on our best front. And I'm telling you, when it comes to a church and it comes to giving yourself to an organization that in reality is going to probably affect your millennial inheritance at the judgment seat of Christ, just like marrying somebody is, if you're a young gal and you're going to get married or you're a guy and you're going to marry a gal, that person you're hooking up to is, is really has the, your millennial inheritance in their hands. And the church that you hook up to 
uh, has, in a, in a real sense, your millennial inheritance in their hands. And uh, it's something that you don't you need to take lightly. And I, I've said this from the day we started our church, and you're going to understand it now as we come through. And that's why I think this week and next week, if you're someone kind of sitting on the fence, you're going to know this week or next week, this is where I want to be or this is where I don't want to be. Because I understand, and I, and I, I don't make any apologies for it, this church is not for everybody. I've never intended it to be. Um, we, we, uh, we, we have specific goals. This church is designed for people who want to, you know, want to further their, their relationship with God and, and their family and all of those things. And it pretty much, you know, goes along those lines. But I think that, that this week and next week, just by looking at what Paul began to do, because what we're going to do, and I want to read here for you in Romans chapter 1, I want to begin in verse 13, because this is where now we really get into the heart. We really get into the heart of where Paul is at with the book of Romans. And from this point on, it's going to be blood, sweat, and tears as far as understanding some great concepts that uh, I think that, that we as a church need to stop and redefine ourselves. I think if there's any church service you don't want to miss, and you're already here so you can't miss this one, well, you can, but you probably won't, is, is next Sunday. Because next Sunday, I think, is going to clearly define my heart, where I'm at, where this church is at, and it's going to better give you a, a better understanding where your heart is at. And it's going to be what my wife and I look back and cherish uh, in our own marriage relationship, and uh, you should in yours, as a defining moment where you come and you have to take a hard look at some things. Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 13, he says, Now I would not have you ignorant, brethren, that oftentimes I purposed to come unto you, but was let hitherto that I might have some fruit among you also, even as among other Gentiles. I am debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. So as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone to believe it, to the Jew first also and then also uh, to the Greek. Now, Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. We pray you'll take our time today. Holy Spirit of God, we pray that you'll come down now and intervene in, in this message. Lord, I, I, I don't have anything of my own to say, but Lord, I believe that you've orchestrated the events. I believe you've orchestrated the people. And I believe that as we've talked about, this church this year sits on the verge of really either going over the top or, or just staying like all the other churches. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to be the people, Lord, that make that decision based on what they do. So help us. Help us to have that that defining moment, as we called it, where we look at ourselves and we really stop to think about where we're at in relationship to this great book and the great message that Paul is trying to convey. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name for the sake we ask it. Amen. Well, by now, uh, as the book of Romans is concerned, you ought to be getting to get a glimpse of, of the great magnitude of this book. The last time we were together, uh, we finished uh, Paul's intro and uh, his greeting, and I told you now that we are going to begin to start into the, into the meat of this book. And this is where the rubber really begins to meet the road, as the expression goes. Remember when we started, when I was 
giving you an introduction to Romans, I showed you how that Romans breaks down by each chapter. And I told you that in chapter 1, Paul addresses the mindset of the Gentiles. In chapter 2, he addresses the mindset of the nation of Israel. And in chapter 3 and 4, he begins to show that in both cases, some things have changed now, and uh, he begins to open up the teachings of the New Testament that we have a better understanding how we're going to reach uh, 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 and do a ministry for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the first thing I want you to see, and, and we've talked about this before, but we've got so many new people coming in that we need to go uh, uh, just talk about this so at least you have a complete understanding of it. The first thing I want to draw your attention to with what I read is found in verse 13. And uh, in verse 13, you find, you find the, the famous expression that you find in the Word of God, and that is uh, where he says, Now I would not have you to be ignorant brethren. Seven times in the New Testament, seven times in the New Testament, you're going to find that expression. And uh, six of them, Paul uses it, and then one expression you find in 2 Peter, uh, where Peter uses it. And what you have here is one of these great studies that, and we have come through this, in fact, you can get on the website or get over here and probably get the series that we did, but you remember that, that I brought you through a number of, of months ago, probably it was maybe two years ago, I, I brought you through the seven series that's found in the Bible, how that God has built into His own Bible a systematic theology that really ensures that you and I as a Christian don't get messed up on bad doctrine. There's a book out that just came out in the last six months that you ought to read. It's, it, to me, I have found two books this year that to me uh, are, uh, I don't think I could, I could ever, ever, ever improve on them as far as what the guy has accomplished in it. And when I read it, it wasn't something that, that he taught me a bunch of things I didn't know but what he did is he reaffirmed some things that I'd been teaching for the last 20 years of my life and, and confirming that the direction I was going was exactly the direction that I needed to go. And the, the first book that out there that you need to get your hands on is a book that it's simply by the title, The Death of Bible Doctrine. It's a book that shows you that Bible doctrine, and we all know that the Bible says that all Scripture is given by inspiration and is profitable, and then it's profitable for four things. And the first thing that it's profitable for is doctrine. And what we have in our churches today is the fact that we have now been 120-some years uh, in America without a Bible, without a final authority. And during that time, the main course of the Bible, the whole purpose and the reason the Bible was even written has been destroyed, and that is doctrine. And we have so many of God's people today that do not understand doctrine about anything in the Bible. And it's because that doctrine is dead as far as the Word of God is concerned. Nobody's preaching it anymore. For instance, here's seven things that Paul says that you and I as a New Testament Christian are not to be ignorant of. These seven things are really what the New Testament is built around in its concepts. And if you want to take the New Testament and lay it on seven platforms or seven basic absolute truths, it's these seven. And yet you're told seven times of these particular things that you and I are not to be ignorant of them, but I guarantee you 
I guarantee you, if you would take the average Christian and begin to sit down with them that's been saved 10, 15 years and ask them today what these seven things are that the greatest Christian that ever lived, Peter, uh, Paul in six cases, Peter in one, told you and I that we are not to be ignorant of. 99% of God's people would be ignorant of them and not know what they are. And yet the whole course of your Christian life and my Christian life the whole foundation of everything that we believe and keeps us between the white lines, so to speak, is found in these seven things that we are not to be ignorant of. And of course, you know, one of them is the, the, the end times. Another one is the rapture of the church. You realize that most churches today do not teach a rapture anymore of the body of Christ? They've forsaken that. And you know why they've forsaken that? Because... We have the death of biblical doctrine in our time. Nobody believes it anymore. You'll find where one of them deals with our, our not being ignorant of how we are to suffer for Christ. You'll find one of them deals with one of the mis, most misunderstood areas in all of Bible Christianity. And that is that we're not to be ignorant of spiritual gifts. You ask the average Christian about spiritual gifts in the Bible, which really hangs on everything in the millennial reward that God has for you, and they look at you like, like a frog in a hailstorm. One of them deals with the baptism of Moses. One of them deals with the restoration of the nation of Israel. And then one of them, and where we're going to deal with today, deals with us not being ignorant of how God is dealing and what He's doing with Gentiles. If you remember up there, Paul said in our opening passage here, he says that I might have some fruit among you, even as also among the Gentiles. Your job and my job as a church at Old Paths Baptist Church, your job and my job as an individual Christian is to have fruit among us. We are to bear fruit. That's our job. If you've been saved 5, 10, 15 years, and you know around here I give you five years, you may be saved for 25 years, but if you've not been around me for five years, I'll give you grace. Because, But if you've been with me for four or five years, you don't get any grace. If you've been in this church four or five years, and in that time you haven't won somebody to Christ, there's something wrong with your spirituality. And I'm not talking about at the end of Bible study or Sunday morning where somebody raises their hand and I give you them to go work with. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the concept that if your Christianity is not contagious, then there's a good chance your Christianity is contaminated. That's what I'm talking about. Now, this is a defining moment for all of us. And we like to play in our minds that we are great Christians. But the reality of all of this, and again, I'm giving all you people that's been that hasn't been with me for five years, you get a pass, man. You get a pass. Listen to what I'm saying and apply it to your life where it fits, but I'm not, I'm not coming down on you in any way, shape, or form. I want to help you get to the point where you don't, be some, you don't become like some of the people in this church who have been in this church now since we've started, what, five years? And you couldn't point to one person you have won to Christ since you've been here. Not one. Not one person. And we can think of all the excuses we have today of why we don't. But the real reason is, is because you don't have the intimacy with the Holy Spirit of God that naturally produces that fruit. 
People come to me and they say, why won't you give me somebody to disciple? My answer back is, when is it ever my job to give you somebody to disciple? Why don't you go out and win somebody to Christ and then disciple them? But you see, that's where we're at today. That's where we are at. We need a defining moment. We need a defining moment. And uh, when you come down through here, uh, you're going to find that when Paul begins to open this thing up, your job and my job is to bear fruit among the Gentiles. And there's two concepts I want to talk about today that I want you to go out of here and understand, not only in the, in the doctrinal side of it as far as Romans is concerned, but from a practical standpoint uh, of just being able to put it into your own life. And that is the concept of of the concept of God dealing with a man through his conscience and God dealing with a man or a woman under the law. And this is what Paul begins to break down. And this is, and there's a number of things here that he does not want us to be ignorant of. And, and many times I'm asked, I, uh, people ask me because it's not apparently clear in Romans 1 like it is in the other places, exactly what we are not to be ignorant of. And so I want to show you today uh, what Paul says, you and I, and there's a number of things here that you and I are not to be ignorant of. Now in your Bible, in time, you're going to find a word. And this word is the word called dispensation. Dispensation. You find it four times in your Bible. Now I want to give you a, a basic definition of the word dispensation. The word dispensation forms for us a teaching in the Bible called dispensationalism. And dispensationalism is the concept of, of what a dispensation is as it comes through the Bible. And I'm going to break this down real easy for you. Those of you in the Institute, by the time we're done, we will, we will have laid out all of these and you will be responsible for knowing each one of them and being able to define it. But for the rest of you here today, I want you to understand that in a general sense. And my job here is to help you and every little piece of information you can get. And as always, hey kids, as always, if, if you're here and you're young and you're trying to figure all this out and, and I say some things, which I know I will, that maybe you don't understand, hey, let me tell you something. Do me a favor. Come and see me. My house is always open to you. There is nothing I like better than spending time one-on-one -on -one with people in the Word of God and helping them. You will absolutely be amazed that if you just come over for one hour and let me explain things, maybe that I talk about on Sunday, you don't understand how much clearer it's going to be for you. Of course, that is, the ball's in your court, but that's the bottom line. And I'm always making that offer because I want you to always know that that is my number one job is to help you put it together. Now, in your Bible, you're going to find that, that a dispensation is usually taught like this. And this is usually the definition that you get, and it's really not exactly true. In the Bible, you're going to find in most books that talk about dispensation, you're going to talk about that a dispensation is a period of time. Now, that's a half true. And uh, if you want a, a Bible definition of a dispensation... A dispensation is a period of time in which God is doing something differently than he did before. When God changes the way that he does something, it's more than just a period of time. 
It's a period of time in which God did it this way and now He's doing it this way. Let me give you a great example. The Old Testament and the New Testament. You see? In the Old Testament, God did things one way. When the New Testament came, He did it another way. That is a basic difference in a dispensation. In the Old Testament, He did it this way under the dispensation of law. In the New Testament, He does it this way under the dispensation of grace. There's still periods of time, but they're more than periods of time. They're now periods of time in which God is doing something differently than He did before. That's a very important definition that you want to get. Now, in your Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, there's probably 10 or 11 dispensations depending on how you count them. Some guys count them differently than others. Some guys count eight. You know, some guys count nine. I, I think that if you're honest with the Bible and you, you put it in the perspective of the Bible, uh, you're going to come up with somewhere between 10 or 11 dispensations. 10 or 11 places in your Bible where God changes the way that He does something and He does it differently. Now, dispensationalism is really the fundamental key to the Bible. And what we're doing in our institute, for those of you who are there, and I told you that I'm going to continue to help you put it all together as we come through it, but what we're doing there is trying to build everything and lay it all out, and then we're going to come back and put it in this big picture called dispensationalism. But we've got to learn the interstructure of it first. So basically when the Bible says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, that you and I are to study to show ourselves approved unto God, a workman with needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, then that rightly dividing the truth would what we would call dispensationalism. Being able to look at the Bible and not see it. You know, the Bible's an intimidating book. I mean, when you look at the Bible, man, that thing is, that thing is an incredible intimidating book. It's big, the print is small, and it, it seems like it goes on forever, and there's 66 books in there. There's 1,181 chapters. There's 31,176 verses. It's a very intimidating book. You see, when God told you to rightly divide it, He wanted to take this complicated book that, that, that is, looks very intimidating, and then He wanted you to be able to understand this massive amount of information by breaking the Bible down into 12 basic sections. And once you rightly divide those sections, and that's my job is to help you to do that, and you study each individual section and learn it, then you're able to bolt them together and the Bible becomes a book that is no, no longer intimidating. You see, that's the job of the church. The job of the church, my job as a pastor, is to let you know the things that you are not to be ignorant of. And one of those things is dealing with the Gentiles that you as an individual and me as a, as a pastor and this church as a church, thank you, uh, would have some fruit, oh, I'm sorry if I lost your place, would have some fruit among the Gentiles. So in, in, in Romans, Paul is showing that God has he has begun to establish and he has started the dispensation of, of grace or the church. Now, Paul uses the word dispensation four times in your Bible. And I'm going to give you these and I'm going to show you how it works here basically. In Ephesians chapter 1 verse 10, he says, 
that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. All right, what's he talking about that one? You see, that one there is talking about sometime in the future. The dispensation of the fullness of times simply means when eternity begins and time shall be no more. That's the dispensation of the fullness of times. You're going to find that the other three that he talks about, one in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, where he says in verse 2, you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 25, in verse 25 he says, uh, says, I am made a minister according to the dispensation of God which is given to me to you. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 17, where he talks about the dispensation of the gospel <coughs> that was committed to him. In those three cases, he's talking about the fact that from, we, we just finished the Old Testament. God has started the dispensation of the New Testament. And God gave that dispensation to Paul to give to you and me. And that's basically what he's doing in Romans. The book of Romans we have just come through a transitional period from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John up through the book of Acts. Now in Romans, he's beginning to lay out the dispensation of grace or the church. And what he does is he takes the time to, uh, to lay it out so you and I can see uh, how it works. And remember now, he says in verse 13 of chapter 1 that he wants to have fruit among the Gentiles and that's your job and it's my job. All right, let me explain to you how it works. And we're going to do this very basically and it'll help you and you'll go out of here. It's not going to overwhelm you. <clears throat> I'll break it down. We'll save the deep stuff for the institute. But you'll go out of here with a basic concept about how this thing works. And in the Old Testament... Before the law. And this would be basically from your first man in the Bible, Adam, up to Moses, where Moses gets the Ten Commandments. So in your Bible, it's basically Genesis up to, uh, you know, the end of the book of Genesis, around Exodus chapter 12, where they come out of Egypt and Moses gets the law, Exodus chapter 20, and in the books that corresponding with that. So in that early part of your Bible, you got to remember that uh, during this time, there's no law. There's no Bible. There's no church. There's nothing that, that a man has. He doesn't have a preacher. He doesn't have any prophets. He doesn't have an Old Testament. So in that particular dispensation, how did God deal with man? This is called the dispensation of conscience. Now, let me tell you what your conscience is. Basically, your conscience is your soul. And deep down inside of you, you have an outside framework, which we know as your physical body. But inside you, everybody in this room has a spiritual part of you, a spiritual identity, which is referred to in the Bible as your soul. That is where your conscience exists. And the Bible says in Romans chapter 2, and again in 1 Corinthians over there, around uh, verse 9, it says that what God did is that when God created man, and if you listen to this, this is going to help you figure out a lot of things and a lot of questions that you probably have had about how God does things. When God made man, when you were born, 
when I was born, long before you were saved. And certainly in this dispensation from Adam to Moses, where there is no preachers, there is no church, there is no Bible, they don't have any law. What the Bible says that God did is when He made man, deep down in your soul, deep down in your conscience, deep down in your heart, not the, not the muscle that pumps the blood, but the very essence of who you are down inside your soul, your spiritual heart, so to speak. The Bible says that God wrote His law on the tables of your heart. Now, you know how I know that's true? Stop and think about this. When you go to a, a country like maybe in the Congo or down in, in, in South America and you meet tribes that have never, uh, that have no culture like we do, they have no, no understanding of God, they have no understanding, you're going to find that in every case, even though they have no church, they have no preacher, they have no Bible, or they have no knowledge of God, do you know what they do have? They have a setup in their own society, no matter how private it is, of right and wrong. You will never meet the most pagan tribe in the world that does not know it's wrong to steal. You know, over in Africa, in those deep tribes down there where they've never seen a white man, do you realize in those tribes that when a, uh, now they have no law, they have no Bible, they have no church. When a man steals, you know what they do? They cut off his hand. When he steals again, they cut off the other hand. When he steals a third time, you'd have to learn to pick it up with his toes, I guess, uh, then they kill him. Now, who taught them, thou shalt not steal? In other words, when God created man, he created man with the, with the conscience of right and wrong because he wrote the basic commandments on man's heart. So when God wants to deal with somebody in the age of conscience, back from Adam to, to Moses, you know what he does? He reaches down, the Bible says he's the true light that lighteth every man. He touches that man's heart and his conscience, and he illuminates the Word of God that is already put in there. And then that man has a choice. That man either responds to the light that God gives him, or he runs from the light that God gives him. It's that simple. Somebody says, well, how does God save the heathen if they've never had a missionary? They have a missionary. Somebody says, well, how does God deal with people where they don't have the Bible? They do have a Bible. In their conscience, God wrote the law, and that's where God starts. And here's the bottom line. In the Old Testament, you know what you find? Before you have any law, before you have any Bible, any preacher, any church, you have people to do the exact same thing that you and I do today with churches, with Bibles, with preachers. You know what they do? Some of them find God, and some of them do not find God. We think it's different. It's not different. We think because we have church buildings, you know, and we have, you know, here's the church, here's the steeple, open the door, and there's all the people. We think that it's different than it was back then. It wasn't. You may have the written Word of God in your hand today, but they have the written Word of God on the tables of their heart. They didn't need a complete revelation of God to find God. All that God needed was to touch the light that He gave them, and they either said, I want to know more, or they said, no, thank you. 
human nature is always the same. It's a lot like this. Let's say you and I, we're going to go caving. You know what caving is? That's where you go down there. They call it Sputnikin or whatever they Sputnikin or whatever they call it. We're going to go caving. And I tell you, oh, I know, I know, I know the best place to go caving in southern Missouri. So we all go. We got our little helmets with our little lights on. And I, we start crawling in this big opening in the ground. And uh, we get down there. We've been in now for two or three hours. And suddenly, I say to you, I'm not sure how we're going to get out of here. By the way, one time down in southern Missouri, I only did caving one time, and I crawled into this thing, you know, and it was, it, the opening wasn't very big. You had to crawl on your hands and knees. And I'm in there, and I can shine a light back there, and I can see where it goes, and it turns, and it goes down, and I'm thinking to myself, this is really, and about that time, something brushed by my face. And I turned the light up, and there on the ceiling of that cave had to be 100,000 wasps. That's a very short caving story. Because that's where my career started and ended. And, but we're down there, and I simply say now, hey, I don't know how to get out. So we're down there for two days, guys, and you're getting hungry, and you're upset with me. And suddenly, we're out there, and we're sitting down there, and then we're talking, and we're arguing back and forth, and, 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 and you're mad at me, and, and I'm sorry. But then suddenly, we hear something. And we look down the end of that cave, and way down there, we begin to see a flicker of light. Now, you know what we're going to do? We're gonna, now, by this time, our lights are gone. Our food's gone. We're going to form a chain. We're going to hold hands. You probably won't let me lead you, but you'll pick a leader, Kyle. I had my chance and blew it. And if we really want to be rescued, you know what we're going to do? We're going to move toward that light, aren't we? Now, same gang, but we just held up a bank in Blue Springs. You drove the car, you had the gun, you had the bag, you spent all the money. You two were a lookout men, you passed out the masks. And we just made a getaway. And we hear the cops and the sirens going after us. We get ahead of them. We get away from them. And we pull in there, and there's a big cave. And we run into that cave, and we're going to hide. We ditch the cars, and we run back in that cave as far as we can, and we're listening, and suddenly, suddenly, we see sounds, and we look, and here comes a light, and we know that the police are checking that cave. Now, you know what we're going to do now? We're going to run farther back in that cave. You see, some people want to get caught when God lights them. And some people don't want to get caught. Some people love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. And just like some people, when they're legitimately lost and they want out, they run to the light. Some people, when they're dishonest and they don't want to do what's right, they run from the light. Old Testament or New Testament. You know what God need, deals with in a Gentile along those lines? He deals with your conscience. And then a dispensation from Adam to Moses, that's exactly how God dealt with man. He dealt with man through his conscience. And the Bible says that in John chapter 8 verse 9, that that's how God convicts you and me. 
Romans chapter 9, verse 1 says that our conscience bears witness with the things of God. And 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2 says, yes, that once God touches our conscience, we have the ability to sear that conscience to let not God in anymore. Human nature is always the same. And you need to understand that rather he's talking about the American Indians in North America back in the third century or the heathen in Africa or the aborigines in Australia or deep down in the Congo or somewhere on this planet where the name of Christ has never been preached. The Bible says he's the true light that lighteth every man that comes in this world. And when it comes to Gentiles, God has written the law on their hearts. And all God has to do is touch them with the light of God and then God finds out if they're going to run to him or away from him. And then God deals with them on that basis. Now you just learned a major piece of how God deals, specifically how God deals in the dispensation of conscience. And it's an incredible concept that you need to understand. Okay, when, when the law came to Moses. Now we're going to go from the dispensation of conscience to the dispensation under the law. When God, began, when God came and began to develop the nation of Israel through Moses, he gave them a written law. Now they did, didn't just have a written law in their hearts. Now they had it in their hands. And where God dealt with the Gentiles through the written law on their hearts, through their conscience, he now begins to deal with the nation of Israel through a written law that they have in their hand, which we know as the Old Testament law of Moses. And God deals with them along those bases. And that runs from Moses up to Jesus Christ. Now, just a little side note. This is why, basically, the Jews feel they're superior to you and me as a Gentile. Because they look at it as that we're just dumb dogs and God didn't give us anything. And God gave them the written oracles of God. So that's what makes them think they're special. And if you ever talk to a, a real Jew, not an American Jew, but a real Jew. And if he knows you're a Christian, he'll drive you nuts. You know why? He thinks he's better than you are. And in one sense, he is. Because he did get the oracles of God, and you and I didn't. And salvation is of the Jew, because Jesus Christ, who is our Savior, came from the tribe of Judah, and he was Jew, and salvation goes through the loins of Abraham for the whole world. But a Jew doesn't see that. He just got this attitude that he's superior because he thinks he's God's chosen people, and you and I are not. He has no concept of Christ, no concept of the church. Basically, to reverse that process, that's why Gentiles hate the nation of Israel. That's why everybody looks at the Jew and they make you know, degrading remarks. The jokes they make. How the Jews always, you know, always uh, are after money. And they, they supposedly the conspiracies are how they run the world. The Jews have always got a bad rap because the Gentiles look at them and say, God blessed you and gave you things you didn't give me. The Jew looks at the Gentile and says, yes, he did. Sorry about you. And there's an animosity between the two. Now, when we get to Romans chapter 11 in our study, you're going to find how that you and I as a Christian, we're not to look at the Jew from a Gentile standpoint. We're to look at it from another whole perspective, which is a 
Christian standpoint. This is why he says in Romans 11 that for your sakes, they, the Jews, the nation of Israel will be your enemy. But you're not to be their enemy. You know why? Because one of the seven things you're not to be ignorant of is Romans chapter 11, how God is dealing with the nation of Israel and how you as a church should see them. See how it all works? What Paul wants us not to be ignorant of is this fact. That if we are to reach Gentiles, have some fruit among us, we can't deal with them in the dispensation of conscience anymore. If we're going to reach Jews, and we're not going to reach a lot of Jews because blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. But we will reach some Jews. There are some Jews who do get saved. But you're not going to get them saved by dealing with them according to the law. Those two dispensations are gone. And what he's trying to get us to understand in Romans chapter 1 is the concept of dispensations that there was a time when God reached out to the Gentiles through their conscience. And there was a time, Romans chapter 2, when God reached out to the Jew through the law. But that time has now come and gone in both cases. Jesus now has come. He's died on the cross through his death last week or last time together, through his burial and through his resurrection, he has been declared to be the Son of God, made of the seed of David, and now he is the Savior. And if we're going to have fruit among the Gentiles, it can't be based on the conscience. It can't be based on the law of a Jew. It has to be based on the fact that he was born, he died, was buried, and rose again the third day. That's what he's trying to get across. And in chapter 3 and chapter 4, he goes into great lengths to show you that getting God's righteousness is the only way that the Jew and the Gentile, Romans 1, Romans 2, is ever going to get the sin problem solved. As Paul, as the apostle to the Gentiles, that was his main job. His main job was to get men and women to understand this because his whole purpose is my purpose. My job as pastor is to do everything in your life that you as an individual will bear fruit among the Gentiles. This church will only be as strong. This church will only be as, as soul winning as the individual people are within this body. It's just that simple. It's just that simple. Paul was an evangelist. And as an evangelist, he went from place to place to place. And what he did on a large scale is what I basically do on a very local scale in this church. He would find a young man and that man would be one to Christ. Paul would begin to invest his life with that young man, train him, give him the mysteries of everything that, that God wanted him to know. And then through the process, more people would be saved, and then God would start a church, or, or he, Paul would start a church, he would move on someplace else, and he'd leave that young man there to be the pastor of that New Testament local church. That's the process. We do that same process through a little different avenue. 
I'm not going to leave here and go start another church someplace. I will train young men and young ladies up within this body and then in time send them out to start churches as God so directs. But it's the same process. It's the same process. And uh, he understood his personal responsibility to lay out and to teach much of the material that I'm teaching you today. Now, in light of Romans chapter 1, verse 13 and 16, and you know now that we begin to see what we are not to be ignorant of here, let me show you some other things that, that he's trying to get across to us. And brother, this is where the rubber really meets the road. This is where the rubber meets the road. We as God's people are not to be ignorant of these things when, when we really look to bear fruit among the Gentiles. Now, the first thing that he talks about here is we're not to be ignorant of, and we've, we've talked about this already, but we want to put them now. There's four things here, four or five. And the first thing we want to look at is the fact that we are to understand the concept of dispensation. In your Bible... Your Bible follows a pre-millennial return of the Lord Jesus Christ approach. What does that mean? It means that Christ is coming back before he sets up his kingdom. That's called premillennialism in your Bible. The Bible, the whole Bible is built on that, on that basis of truth. And when you study the dispensation, the dispensations... Now, within those 11 dispensations, you have seven covenants that God makes with individuals. When you put them all together, it all leads you in the direction of a pre-millennial return of the Lord Jesus Christ, which again is not taught today in just about any churches on the face of this planet. So that's the first thing. We are to understand and not be ignorant of dispensations. The second thing is we are not to be ignorant of the fact that, that in the Old Testament, before the law, God dealt with Gentiles on the basis of their conscience. That would be from Adam to Moses. And then we're also to understand that uh, once the law came, that God didn't deal with their conscience anymore. He dealt with them through a written mandate. A written law that was no interpretation of. It was right there in black and white. No argument with it. You either did it or you didn't. No alibiing with it. And what he, what he wants us to be ignorant, not to be ignorant of is the fact that the Gentiles are in a mess. We talked about it last week. How that when Adam sinned, he lost God's image. And when he lost God's image, he threw the whole world into darkness. And from that point on, man is in a fallen state. From that point on, there's no way that man can die and go to heaven. In that point, God deals with them on the basis of their conscience before the law. And after God gives the law, he deals with them on the basis of the law. But it's, it's temporary. And it's an imperfect system. That's why when they died in the Old Testament, they went to Abraham's bosom. They couldn't go to heaven. The system in the Old Testament was a temporary system, both for the Gentiles and for the Jews. But when Christ came and died and rose again, the system got perfected. And now, men and women, when they die, they, the image, or when they get saved, the image gets restored, and when they die, absent from the body, it will be present with the Lord. And that's the great concept. 
And then the next thing, the third thing that we are not to be ignorant of is the fact that the only way that you and I, or a Gentile or a Jew today, can get God's righteousness is not through the conscience or not through the written law, but through the written revelation of God, the Word of God, which shows us how to apply the righteousness of Jesus Christ to your sin debt, whether you are a Jew or whether you're a Gentile. And then the last thing, the fourth thing that we are not to be ignorant of is the fact that our ministry to Gentiles, we are to have the attitude of being a debtor. I think one of the greatest contradictions in the Bible, one of the greatest contradictions in the Bible, and we're going to talk about this in the last part of this, and to me this is where the defining moment comes, or I should say begins. You always hear people talk about there's contradictions in the Bible. Well, there are no contradictions in the Bible. We know that. But I want to show you one that appears to be a contradiction and bears the time of somebody figuring out what it means. In Romans chapter 1, verse 14, he makes the statement, I am debtor. But in Romans chapter 13, verse 8, he makes the statement, Oh, no man anything. For you and for me, the defining moment in your life and my life when it comes to bearing fruit among the Gentiles is the reconciliation of those two concepts. You and I are to have an attitude that we have a debt to pay. I've been around Christianity now for a long time. I've seen Christians in every shape, size, and color. I've, I've viewed it, I, I, I have dealt with probably in my lifetime to this point, well over 200,000 people in my life. I've added to that, seen just about every mistake a person could make, have made many of them myself. But the older I get, the longer I am in this, the more I see that Christianity has completely taken a reversal and the greatest trick of the devil, if I would have thought 30 years ago that, that the issue that we're talking about here would have ever been a legitimate issue, I don't think I could have understood it then. But understanding now what the devil has done and how he has, he has, he has negated so many people's ability, that I see men and women all the time that have real potential. But you might as well take a red magic marker and put an X on their forehead and cancel them out. Because the devil has done his work. Because we as God's people today do not look at what we have in Christ and us bearing fruit among the Gentiles as one who has a debt to pay. We do not. We do not. There's something terribly wrong, and I have seen this all my life. There's something terribly wrong with a Christian that the longer he lives, or the longer she lives, the more important they think they are. There's something drastically terribly wrong with a body of Christ, with pastors, with deacons, with church members, who the longer, the longer uh, they live, in the realm of Christianity as a Christian, the more important they think they are. 
We are a debtor. We have a debt. We have a debt that we must pay. We must live our life as a child of God, understanding the debt that we owe. Back in 1988, most of you were, how many were, how many were born before 1988? Half our church. Well, then, this is going to be a revelation for you. Back in 1988, some of you older people remember this. We were in ministry together at this point, 1988, some of us. And uh, I remember in 1988, a guy wrote a book that said that Jesus Christ was coming back in 1988. Remember that? Marlon, you probably remember that. In nine, he, he wrote the book that, it, that Christ was coming back in 1988. Now, obviously, Christ did not come back in 1988. I'm not worried about whether you or not, but I'm still here, so I know that he didn't. And, and I'll never forget, this was one of the greatest lessons God ever taught me. And I want to reiterate this to you again. Always look and keep your eyes open of what Christians and the body of Christ do around you. I never listen to what a person says to me. I watch what a person does after they say it to me. I do that with everything. I may not say much. You may never get a word out of me. But my whole life is built around dealing with people. Because I've been burned so many times. And I know how God's people are. God's people will look at you, smile at you, tell you they love you. And then lie straight through their teeth to you. I never take that personal. That's the job that I'm in. Every dog catcher gets bit sooner or later. You'll never find a dog catcher after 35 years that says, I am bite free. And I'm telling you, in the ministry, you are not going to be bite free. So you just deal with it. I mean, I mean it, you're going to get bit. But when you understand and you realize that around you, pay attention to what is going on and transpired. In 1988, I got one of the greatest revelations about Christians, the body of Christ. And it's only gotten worse since then. In 1988, it was prophesied that Jesus Christ was coming back. And I even gave a particular time, if I remember, it was completely the wrong time of the year, but... Who knew the Bible back then, anyhow? And I'll never forget. Now, let's, and I, and I, and I looked after it didn't happen. And I viewed what the body of Christ did. Now, what would you do if you knew for a fact, if it was an absolute truth, that I could get up here and I could say that you had five more months and then Christ was coming back? What would you do as a debtor? Well, you know what they did in 1988? All of God's people went out and ran up every credit card that they had. They took every trip that they didn't think they'd ever get to take. They ran up their expenses up onto a national level. Why? Because they felt sure that they were never going to have to pay that debt. And my, my, does God not have a rent that fits any nut in this world? And when the day came and went, everybody realized that they had the debt to pay because of their stupidity. Let me tell you something. 
I would, I would, I would be absolutely embarrassed today to stand up there and tell you that if I found out that five months from now Christ was absolutely coming back, I would be absolutely embarrassed today if I changed my life one iota. If I felt a more surge of an urgency, I would be embarrassed to be in front of you today. If I felt like I had to get on the stick and do something, I would be embarrassed today. We have a debt to pay. It isn't based on, well, we only got five months left, so let's all get some people saved. That's what's wrong with God's people today. We have no understanding that the debt that was paid on Calvary's cross, therefore, we have no urgency to pay that debt. And when an urgency comes in, when God's people actually believe, oh, yes, we are in a defining moment now if you haven't got it yet. When God's people thought that he was coming, it wasn't about the lost. It wasn't about making up what we don't get. No, it was about let's get more things. It was Epicureanism. Let's eat, drink, and to marry. Tomorrow we die. Never in the history of the world, as a country, has our national debt hit such an absolutely unprecedented level of out-of-control spending. I mean in the multiple trillions of dollars, and it is absolutely destroying the very fabric of this country and its economic concept. The mark of the Laodicean Christian, whether he believes the Bible or not, we're way past the point now, and, oh, I believe the King James Bible is the Word of God. And his lack of reality, and their out-of-control spending, through the lack of their self-discipline and self-control. We're looking at a day across this country where men and women are losing their homes. They're losing their homes 50% greater than they were a year ago. Hundreds of thousands of families are going to lose their homes. And what do we do? I'll tell you exactly what we do. We blame it on the lenders. We blame it on the government. We blame it on everything but reading the fine print and realizing what kind of scenario you were getting yourself into. God's people drive me nuts. There hardly is a day that doesn't go by that somebody doesn't try to insult my intelligence. We were at a ball game. A couple of the little kids play on Saturday. By the way, we had an unchallenged record. We lost every game. Bubba's fault. Bubba's fault.
I'm sitting there a couple of weeks ago, and I'm, I've seen a, a, some people that I hadn't seen for a while. And, and, and sometimes, I, I, I don't, the older I get, I, I tell my wife, there are certain situations that I say, honey, I'm not going. And she'll say, well, you need to go. And I said, no, I just don't need to go. And she'll say, well, why don't you need to go? And I said, because if I go, I'm going to say something. And I, I, the only way I can go is if we put duct tape on my mouth and we just say I've got a, a cold sores all over my face. Because I know I'm going to, I got the best intentions. I know I've got the best uh, that I don't want to say anything and be out of line. I want to keep my mouth shut. But there comes a time when I just, I, I, I just lose myself. And if I go in that particular scenario, I'm going to say something that you're going to regret, I'm going to regret, they're going to regret, and God's going to regret. So it's better off if I don't go. And this person came up to me and, and, and said to me, they said, now I've got to give you a little background. That this, this, these people had been to nine churches in the last three or four years. They, they got mad at somebody else took some goofy kid and went out and started a church. And I told him, I told the kid when he started, this isn't going to work. And so now he, they come up to me, you know, and he says to me, like he's, he's making some kind of spiritual statement. And he says to me, well, you know, our church is gone now. I looked down and I said, oh, really? When I, when I was trying not, and I've got my hands. I got, I, I won't pull my pants down today and show you the bruises on my legs, but I am holding on to the fat on the sides of my legs. And I don't have a lot. I'm gripping myself. Because I want, I said, oh, really? What I wanted to say is, no, blinkety blank. Now, you might as well learn something else. I'm just as human as you are. If you would have been preaching, it wouldn't have been blinkety-blank. I have to disinfect my office sometimes when she leaves. Because when she gets on a tirade, look out. My wife said, is the, is the wallpaper peeling up there? And I said, no, that's just Nikki was just here and... And, 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 and how to fit. And then he says this. He says, well, we're not sure what we're going to do yet, but he says, you know what? God always comes through, and he'll figure, he'll, he'll all, he hasn't let us down yet. I, and I just looked and I smiled. What I wanted to say was, let you down yet. You've been in more churches in the last four or five years than most people get into in a lifetime. He hasn't done anything for you yet. You want me to think because of your stupidity and you can't figure life out that you're really something spiritual and you're right where God wants you to be. Don't insult my intelligence. Don't tell me you've been in and out of churches for the last six, seven years. You blow another one and God is in your life leading and guide you to another catastrophe. But I kept my mouth shut. I kept my mouth shut. But I'm telling you, the mark of the Laodicean church is reckless, impulsive, spending, no patience. Everybody's asked to have it now. 
And Paul said in chapter 1, verse 14, I am debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians. It didn't mean that he was a debtor to MasterCard at 22%. It didn't mean he was debtor to American Express. It didn't mean that he was dead upside down in everything that he owned. It meant that he understood that he had a debt to pay. And the old man can serve two masters. Most of God's people are debtors, all right, just not in the right context. Their debt to their ungodly house payment. Their debt to their wants versus their needs. And they stick around there, I don't know how many times uh, I've, I've dealt with somebody over the years that got themselves in a mess. And they'll say, but you know, through it all, this is what God had for us. And I, I, I look at them like that couple. And I say, you're an idiot. God is not the author of this confusion. Get a reality check. Some of you have great potential. And you're going to lose every opportunity God has for you. Because you're going to wind up being a debtor to this world and never pay the debt that you owe him. You're going to have to get a second job. You're going to have to work five jobs. You're going to maintain some, some white elephant. You're going to spend the rest of your life owing everybody except the one you owe. It's going to keep you from Bible study on Thursday night. It's going to keep you from Sunday morning. It's going to keep you from learning your Bible. God says you are a debtor. Some of you will never fulfill the debt you owe to God. Your standard of living, your lifestyle is so totally outside your income. Some of you, in time, will be able to fix and turn it around. But it's going to take a change in lifestyle. It's going to take a defining moment in your life. It's going to take you getting your head out of your rear end and getting reality and quit lying to yourself about you're out of control. The great contradiction, I am debtor, owe no man anything. I actually think what would have happened in Acts chapter 8 when the great revival is going on in, in Samaria and there on the back side of the desert is an old Ethiopian eunuch. You know what God likes? He likes the freedom that we have in life to go wherever, do whatever, be whatever God wants us to be. What a tragedy it would have been if when he called Philip, to leave Samaria, go on the backside of the desert that Philip couldn't go because he had a second job. He couldn't go because he got himself in so much debt that he didn't have the freedom to go wherever, do whatever God's called him to do. You're a debtor! Not to the bank, not to the credit card companies, not to your in-laws. 
not the people. You're a debtor to him. And the great trick of the devil is to get you so swallowed up in that debt, you never pay the real one. And then to maintain your spirituality, walk around like everything's okay. God's people drive me nuts. Some of you, bless your hearts, you're young and stupid. Nothing wrong with being young and stupid. Most young couples are young and stupid. But you can only make so many mistakes being young and stupid. In the world that we live in today, it doesn't take any more than one and two. And that young, stupid mistake you pay for for the next 20 years of your life. When you ought to be reading the Bible, when you ought to be studying the Bible, you've got yourself so wedged in everything. And yet, I understand, in some cases, there are natural events that you had nothing to do with. You got hurt, you broke your back, you broke your leg, you broke whatever. I'm not talking about that. But even in that, you maintain the attitude of prioritizing in your life. There are some things you just can't do anymore. I'm not mad at you, but this church is, has a responsibility to bear fruit among the Gentiles. Where is your real debt at today? That's the question. Don't look at me like that. Don't get mad at me. Where is your real debt lie today? And why? Are you like Bugwit over here a couple of weeks ago? Well, boy, look, God has just taken so good of us. You idiot! He ain't doing anything for you. Some of you are young and you're stupid. And you make bad choices. But you're still young enough if you get the help that you can fix those choices. But very frankly, some of you, it's not stupidity. It's not being young. It's character flaws. It's the fact that you don't, you need a moment. You need a time. You need to get honest. You need to realize that you have a debt to pay. And then look at the debt you've got to pay to this world, to the debt you owe him. It's no wonder you haven't won anybody to Christ in the last 20 years. It's no wonder you have to pretend you have the power of God. It's no wonder you got to keep talking about all the great things you do. Because God isn't revealing it through anything. This church has to understand but we have a debt. And it isn't about all you want or all you got to have. It's about the debt we owe him. Owe no man anything with a great contradiction of I am debtor. Some of God's people over the years that I've dealt with in my mind, though I love them, I know that they're unteachable. The older you get, 
The harder it is to change, folks. You young couples, listen to me. If you can fix it, you better fix it now because the older you get, the more it compounds. The more you have problems, the more it gets com complicated. And the older you get, the less willing you are to admit your mistakes. The older you get, the more you feel like you got to maintain some spiritual facade. Paul says you're not to be ignorant. Now, we're not to be ignorant till there's a debt that we owe, a debt that needs to be paid, a debt that requires the majority of our time, the majority of our way of life, the majority be able to do it because of the other debts we owe. And you can get mad at me all you want. At the Christ, I'll be your Keep your focus. Don't get entangled with this world. Never let the debt that you owe this world interfere with the debt you owe him. around and you 
put God in the equation like he's part of it when he's not. And in the process of that little bullying in a game that my two teenage daughters played, they never thought about the gas. They never thought about the insurance. They never thought about the tires. They never thought about changing the oil. They never thought about the upkeep. They never thought about the maintenance. And they certainly never looked at the sticker. All they saw was what they wanted. They didn't stop and think who was going to pay for it. Take that same scenario and put it in your life today. And this is why you have no time for ministry. This is why you have to sell your soul to this world. This is why. And yet, I'm telling you this, I've worked with some of you, and, and, and I don't need to beat you up.